Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the Durham Book Festival. I'm Peter Guttridge. I'm a journalist and I was a crime reviewer for The Observer for many years. And it was also a pleasure to have the books of two of my panellists uh, coming across my desk. And I'm, I wish I was still a reviewer when the third uh, person came along. Uh, to my immediate right is Drida Say Mitchell, whose new book is Hit Girls. Uh, it's the fourth and final one in her East End series, I kind think. Kind of the fifth, really. Kind of the fifth, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Okay, my apologies. Uh, to her uh, right is Sophie Hanna, whose seventh novel, uh, Kind of Cruel, is out now. And to my far right is a woman who's got three books out in 12 months, in fact, Mari Hanna. Uh, they're going to be reading from their books just briefly and talking about their new books. I'm going to then be quizzing them. Uh, you're going to have ample time to ask them questions, and then they'll be signing copies of these and other books in the bookshop. Please welcome our guests once more. Trida, explain yourself. Okay, explain <laughs> myself. Um, what I'll do is I'll read from the start of my latest book, Hit Girls, which actually came out um, last year, and it's the kind of the final book in a book I started with my first book, which was Running Hot, which was never meant to be five books, but kind of morphed into five books. And it's actually two of the characters who you meet in Running Hot who've come good. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to put them in a moment of jeopardy, when something happens to one of their children outside what should be one of the safest places, the child's primary school, and what actually happened to um, their child, his two friends as well, who were twins, and they're the daughters of a well-known gangster. So I'll just read you the start of that. And I'm going to stand up. I used to be a teacher, so I'm going to treat this like assembly, everyone. Okay. Okay. Hit girls. The twin girls ran across the playground. They were laughing their heads off. Five minutes later, they would be dead. 3.30 on the dot, the kids were streaming out at home time at Parkhurst Primary School at Claremont Road in the heart of London's East End. Oranges and lemons played temptingly from an ice cream van in a neighboring street. The July sun dazzled in the clear blue sky the heat was hitting 29 degrees C. Mum, 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 look at my picture, one of the 10-year-old girls yelled as she waved a piece of paper in the air. Their mum, 27-year-old Marina Lewis, smiled tightly back as she waited just inside the playground near the former schoolkeeper's office. She was a size zero thin, medium height, shoulder-length blonde hair she had done up every two weeks at Betty's hair salon and blue eyes that started behind false eyelashes as if she were looking for something better in life. But it didn't matter how hard she tried to copy those celebs she read about in a mag she bought for 99p a time. She always looked like something that came from a bargain bucket. She knew which of her daughters was calling out to her. Molly, most people couldn't tell the twins apart, but she could. Minnie was the talker, took after her, while Molly was the naughty one taken after her dad. Although she was not as naughty as her dad, she'd never murdered anyone in cold blood for a start. Although she felt the sun on her skin, she shivered. If he knew what she was planning to do, she let the terrifying fault hang in the air. Thank you. Sophie, top that. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, okay, well, I'm going to read a bit from my book, Kind of Cruel, uh, and before I do, I'll just tell you the premise of the book, uh, because I always start with the opening scenario for each book. That's the first thing that occurs to me. Um, and this one involves hypnotherapy. Uh, and I have to admit, I deliberately tried to have an idea that involved hypnotherapy because I fancied having some myself. Um, so it was a way of engineering some fun research uh, to set the book uh, vaguely in that world. Um, so the heroine, Amber, has suffered from chronic insomnia for the last 18 months. And in desperation as a last resort, she goes to see a hypnotherapist. Everyone always goes for hypnotherapy as a last resort. No one ever thinks, I have a mild problem, I'll go straight to a hypnotherapist. Um, so off she goes, and under hypnosis, she hears herself saying a strange combination of words. She hears herself saying the words, kind, cruel, kind of cruel. She has no idea where this has come from, and it means nothing to her. A couple of hours later, she's back at home, and a police detective turns up at her house and arrests her for the murder of a woman she's never heard of. And Amber quickly discovers that the reason this has happened is that those words she said under hypnosis, kind, cruel, kind of cruel, are the only clue the police found at the scene of a local unsolved murder. And Amber has no idea how these words that she said in total confidence to a hypnotherapist could possibly have reached the police in such a short space of time. Uh, and so suddenly it becomes very important for Amber to remember where these words came from, if she's ever seen them before. So that's the, the premise. Um, and I'm going to read just a very short bit from the beginning. Um, it's to do with memory and story. That's one of the themes of the book. Uh, and really, that sort of side of it came, came about because I'm, I'm obsessed with memory and the way it distorts. And in particular, you know, if you have a memory that you tell often as a story, it gets to the point where actually what you start to remember is you telling the story. Um, and I was halfway through telling someone this brilliant story of, you know, my earliest memory, and I stopped and thought, I have no idea whether any of that actually happened. <laughs> All I know is I've been telling people it did for the last 40 years. Okay, so I, I will stand up to... Oh, and I must apologise for the fact that I'm wearing trainers. Some of you might not mind that, but for anyone who does, it's because I have a foot injury at the moment, not because I'm generally, you know, scruffy or a rapper. <laughs> okay. If you ask someone for a memory and they tell you a story, they're lying. Me, aged five, curled in a ball behind the doll's house, hiding, scared the teacher will find me, knowing it's going to happen and trying to prepare myself. That's a memory. Here is the story I turned it into. On my first day at primary school, I was furious with my mother for leaving me in a place I didn't know with strangers. Running away wasn't an option because I was a good girl. My parents were always telling me that. But on this occasion, I objected so strongly to what had been inflicted on me that I decided to protest by absenting myself from Mrs. Hill's classroom as thoroughly as I dared. There was a large doll's house in one corner of the room and when no one was looking, I tucked myself into the space between it and the wall. I don't know how long I stayed there, hidden, listening to the unappealing noises my classmates were making, 
and Mrs. Hill's attempts to impose order. But it was long enough for my deception to start to feel uncomfortable. I regretted hiding, but to show myself suddenly would be tantamount to confessing, and I had no desire to do anything so rash. I knew I'd be found eventually, and that my punishment would be severe, and I became increasingly scared and agitated, crying quietly so that no one would hear. At the same time, part of me was thinking, say nothing, don't move, there's still a chance you'll get away with it. When I heard Mrs. Hill tell all the children to sit cross-legged on the carpet so that she could take the register, I panicked. Somehow, although I'd never been to school or even nursery before, I knew what that meant. She was going to call out our names, one by one. When I heard mine, I would have to say, yes, Mrs. Hill. Wherever I was, I would have to say it. The possibility of remaining silent didn't occur to me. That would have involved a level of deceit and rebellion I wouldn't have been prepared to contemplate, let alone attempt. Still, I didn't move from my hiding place. I have always been an optimist and wasn't willing to give up until I absolutely had to. Something might happen to prevent Mrs. Hill from taking the register, I thought. A bird might fly in through the classroom window. Or... I might come up with a brilliant idea in the next three seconds, some amazing exit route out of the mess I'd got myself into. None of those things happened, of course, and when Mrs. Hill called my name, I decided the best course of action was a compromise. I said nothing, but raised my hand from behind the doll's house so that it was clearly visible. I was doing my bit, I thought, admitting to being present, raising my hand responsibly, yet there still remained the miraculous possibility that no one would notice. That was my fantasy. The reality was that Mrs. Hill spotted my protruding arm at once and demanded that I come out from behind the doll's house. Later, she told my mother what I'd done, and I was punished both at home and at school. How much of that story is true? At a guess, I'd say most of it, 90% maybe. How much of it do I actually remember? Hardly any. A true memory might be a fleeting image of a coat, a lemon tree you don't know where, a strong feeling, the name of someone you used to know, just the name, nothing more. Genuine memories do not have beginnings, middles and ends. There's no suspense, no obvious point to them, nothing to satisfy an audience. All this can be applied to Christmas 2003 and to what happened at Little Orchard, which, as you've probably guessed by now, is not a memory, but a story. Hopefully it's a story that can be used to retrieve a few memories embedded within it, and maybe some rejected ones too, ones that didn't fit with the overall narrative and were ditched accordingly. As an experiment, I'm going to assume, for the time being at least, that the Little Orchard story is one in which every detail is false. None of it really happened. Nobody woke up on Christmas morning to find that four members of their family had disappeared. Thank you.
Thank you, Sophie. Mari, so this is exciting times for us because this is a, a newly, not quite yet, released book. It is. Ten days away. Ten so days you're away. getting a first, uh, a first reading of it before, before it actually comes out. It's, it's, a, it's a police procedural, and it's um, set in um, Northumberland, um, Durham, and Yorkshire. So um, I'm, go I'm not going to read the very, very first um, part of the chapter because I want you to hear that in your own voice. But I'm going to read um, the piece where my protagonist, um, DCI Kate Daniels, arrives at a crime scene. And um, just a short piece. The senior investigating officer failed to notice the sun as it crept over Sewing Shield's crags or the stunning aerial view as the police helicopter descended on Housestead's Roman fort. Her attention was firmly focused on a handful of hikers crossing Hadrian's wall in both directions, each one a potential witness or suspect to a serious crime. A little to the west, a police constable in a yellow fluorescent jacket stood guard outside a crime scene tent. He held onto his hat as a chopper made its descent, its rotor blades whipping assorted debris high into the air. Jumping out, Daniels felt a stab of pain in her right shoulder as she hit the ground and ran clear. The pilot returned her thumbs-up gesture and lifted off again, banking steeply before turning back towards Northumbrian, Northumbria Police HQ. As curious hikers began heading her way, Daniels turned to the waiting officer. I'm DCI Kate Daniels, murder investigation team. Where the hell are the lads from Area Command? The PC shrugged. I was just told to wait here. He was tall, fresh-faced and built like a tank, someone she'd want on her side in a sticky situation, but he was no more than a kid. He looked really uncertain, really spooked. This your first one, she asked. He nodded his reply. Then do exactly as I say and you'll be fine. Prime scene investigators are on their way. Until then, it's just you and me. Daniels gave a reassuring smile. They were two strangers, miles from anywhere. In remote areas, it had always been necessary for police officers to carry equipment their urban counterparts wouldn't know what to do with. The young PC had done well. She pointed at the tent. You read this all by yourself? Me and my shifts aren't, ma'am. Good job. She nodded at the advancing crowd. Now get on the radio. I want these people shifted. She waited for him to move. Today would be good. Can we do that, Mom? I mean, the fort is a World Heritage Site. I couldn't care less if it was the birthplace of Julius Caesar. She glared at him. I want them out of here, now. Lifting the flap of the tent, she went inside. A young woman lay face up on the ground, her body splayed out awkwardly. She had long blonde hair and perfect skin. A green scarf matched the colour of her eyes exactly. There were signs of blood loss from her left ear, a pool of which had dripped down and settled on the grass directly beneath her. One shoe was missing, but she was otherwise fully clothed. Daniels could hear the PC on his radio urging the control room to hurry things along. As she crouched down beside the body, he arrived at her side, being careful to use the tread plate so as to preserve forensic evidence. Anything strike you as odd, she asked. Mom? She looks more quayside than hillside, don't you think? The PC stifled a grin. Newcastle quayside was the pulse of a, a party city 
some 30 miles away. He watched the DCI take a pen from her pocket. Carefully, she hooked one end under the ankle strap of a high-heeled patent leather shoe, which was lying on the grass a few feet from the body. With these on, I doubt she walked very far. Daniel studied the five-inch stiletto, holding it up in front of her face, swiveling it round so she could examine the state of the heel. In fact, it's a wonder she could walk at all. If you don't mind me asking, what are you looking for? Any damage that might tell us whether it was ripped off or fell off? And which is it, he queried. My guess would be the latter, but don't quote me on that. Daniels tried to figure out how the girl had got there. They were a fair way from a main road. It had rained the night before, and there was no mud on the heel. Curiously, there were no drag marks on the ground surface either, and no tire tracks outside. The crime scene wasn't telling her anything, and that unsettled, me, and, and that unsettled her. Get me a pool car, would you? And while you're at it, have someone check Housestead's car park for any abandoned vehicles. I can't imagine but the young constable had already left to carry out her instructions. Daniel smiled. The lad was keen, might even make a detective one day. She checked her watch, stood up hoping the pathologist wouldn't be long. She followed the PC outside, lifting her hand to the glare of the sun. There was activity on the horizon. A bunch of uniforms were up at the fort, rounding up her growing audience. Their deadpan faces turned in her direction, all desperate to know what was going on. Figures wearing white hooded overalls were leaving the car park. Behind them, right on cue, a familiar Range Rover appeared. Tim Stanton, Home Office pathologist, got out carrying a black forensic evidence case and trundled across the ground, heading straight for her. Daniels looked sideways as the PC spoke. I noticed boot prints over there, Mum. He pointed to a thin mound of grass a few feet away. They're definitely not mine, but they could belong to the guy who found her. He's in the gift shop waiting to talk to you. Stanton had reached them. He was already suited in white forensic clothing, his trousers tucked into a sturdy pair of green Wellington boots. He acknowledged them with a cheerful good morning and then turned his attention to the SIO. When was she found? An hour ago, Daniels pointed towards his car, spotted from the ridge by a guy out walking the wall. Did he touch the body? No, no, we got lucky. He's ex-job and had the good sense not to. He's my next point, port of call. Stanton looked tired this morning, and Daniels knew why. This was the third call-out in as many hours, according to Pete Brooks in the control room. She stood aside, allowing him to enter the tent, comforted in the knowledge that he'd take as much care with his subject as any regular doctor would had the girl still been alive. She'd known him for several years and they had worked together often. His scientific background complemented her intuitive approach perfectly. The breeze was picking up, sweeping, hand, sweeping hair away from her face. Daniels lifted binoculars to her eyes, panning around 360 degrees. Other than the tent and the hilltop Fort. As far as she could see, there was only the most spectacular countryside, dotted here and there with tiny slate-grey cottages. She wasn't a religious woman, not anymore, but the sight was almost spiritual. As if a higher authority had been at work, it wasn't hard to imagine what life was like here when legions of soldiers toiled in all weathers to build the Roman Empire's most northerly defences 
and a garrison to house 800 of their number, just meters from where she was standing. She sighed. Taken in by dramatic wilderness she'd seen many times before. Unreal, she said. The PC looked at her mom. Such an ugly scene in such a stunning location. Spose, he said. I'm, I'm from round here. He pointed off into the distance, just over that ridge to be precise. Guess you've never see what's on your doorstep your whole life. Daniels looked around her. She couldn't imagine taking this place for granted. Moving away from him, she made a call. Newcastle city centre was too far from the crime scene to run a murder inquiry, at least for the critical first few days. Her second-in-command, Detective Sergeant Hank Gormley, was out searching for a suitable place for a temporary incident room, and she was relieved to hear he'd found one. She wrote down a place name, High Shore, then hung up. Stanton emerged from the tent, bagging latex gloves, nodding to the binoculars hanging round her neck. His neck, her neck, sorry. She can put, you can put those away, Kate. If I'm right, you're going to need some divine inspiration to solve this one. Uh, thank you all. Before I, before I ask you about your, the specific books, can I ask you a more general question? And I mean this in the politest way, but do you think it's essential for a crime writer to be devious, deceptive, and pretty sick in the mind to be able to do what they do? <laughs> I, I think what... I don't think that that's almost the question. It's whether you can use those kind of devices in your writing to kind of almost manipulate your reader, if you like. And I remember saying this to uh, when I was teaching a creative writing class, and they would go, no, 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 we don't manipulate our readers. But you do, because what you want to try and do with your reader is present information, but at the same time, you want to take them one place when they should have been going other places, make them become preoccupied with certain types of evidence information in a scene, for example, when you're also dropping in something something else. I wouldn't call myself sick. However, when I start writing crime books, all kinds of things start happening to me. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, sir? Um, I mean, I think it helps, actually, to be, <laughs> to be something. I mean, not necessarily devious, but you, you have to be sort of interested in and obsessed by the, the sort of dark side of, of human nature and human behaviour. You know, you have to you have to want to get inside the minds of people who, whose minds are fairly warped. Um, but I, I mean, I must admit, I think from a plotting point of view, being devious does help. Um, I mean, one of the questions I'm often asked is, you know, how do I come up with such kind of complicated plots? Because, you know, I'm, my books are quite plotty and there's always lots of this sort of a fairly labyrinthine plots. Um, and people ask me as though I've kind of decided to do this, but I, I mean, I haven't really. I'm used to labyrinthine plotting because it has always been part of my life. So when I was a kid, I had to hatch really complex plots to be able to do what I wanted to do, 
rather than stay at home and do my homework, which is what my parents wanted me to do. <laughs> so, you know, if I wanted to be perceived to be doing my homework in the library while actually at a disco with a, with a you know, attractive Italian boy, I had to do some quite complicated plotting. So it's just always been second nature, really. And, and then, you know, I, I, I just found that it came in handy when I wanted to write crime novels. That's wonderfully honest, Sophie. <laughs> what about you, Mari? I don't think I'm devious, but I think... Um I, I really enjoy, I mean, I really enjoy, uh, as uh, Drida just said, you know, sort of twisting things a little and trying to uh, take the story in a different w direction and then, um, and then bring it back again. And, but like Sophie, I, I plot, I'm a meticulous plotter, first of all. So, so when, I, when I plan a book, I always, always I do perhaps a 20-page synopsis. It sounds like a treatment almost for a film, but that's the way I was taught. So, um, so my deviousness comes out in the week or two weeks that I'm actually planning a book. That's when I'm at my most devious. <laughs> Can I add something to that? I do quite a lot of work in, in prisons. Like, for example, last week I was in Belmarsh Prison and in ISIS, which is the YOI um, next door to it. And the week before that, I was in Wormwood Scrubs and in, in Feltham. And I'm going to be doing a lot of work. The director of the Youth Justice Board has commissioned me to do quite a lot of work in two of his YOIs in terms of creating a creative writing pilot programme. And when you meet criminals, you, some, you know, the most people I meet, they don't, I don't get this idea that people are deceptive, sick. Sometimes people get caught up in a moment and in that moment, with their back against the wall, they do something very foolish. And then they add to it by doing something even more foolish after, after that. So it's interesting when... Because that's something that I'm very interested in, a bit like you, Sophie, is the psychology of, 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 of the criminal. But when you meet people and when you hear their stories, it really was one moment it just went like that, you know? And the big thing for me is working with people like that is that how your life is going to continue? It's just going to keep reoffending, reoffending, or have you got a moment to kind of step out of that? Because that's how I kind of started with my characters in my book. It started off in Running Hot with a drug dealer who was desperate to get out of the underworld. I mean, he's kind of not really that nice a character, really. And it was also about redemption. And you meet the characters now. They're very successful, and once again, something crisis hits. Are they going to go back because their backs are against the wall, ducking and diving again? So I am interested. It's not so police procedurals I'm interested in, but also kind of criminal minds, and it's not that stereotype that people are sick, devious, when you start to actually meet people and start talking to them. Yeah. I think this, when, I, when I said sick, obviously I was I know what so you mean, but yeah. The sick matter was when you have to imagine... That Readers now have got quite jaded appetites, so you, you have to imagine quite horrible things happening to people. And that, that's where I wonder whether the, where the sickness might come I, in. I think it actually depends what kind of crime novels You're you doing. write, yeah. actually, because, um, I mean, I completely agree with Drida that, you know, real murders, um, if you do... I mean, I used to go into prisons a lot. I, I then stopped because... People kept telling me they were innocent, and I kept lobbying to have them released, which didn't go down very well. Uh, so, so now I'm not, I'm not allowed in in case I leave with a boot full of innocent criminals. Um, but it's absolutely true. You know, 99% of murderers, for example, they can't even tell you why they did it. You know, it's just, it just happened. I, mean, I wish, wish it hadn't, you know. Um, and so if you want to write about really... Um, I won't say realistic, because I think realistic means something different, but the kind of crimes that actually happen a lot, 
then yes, I would agree. It's just often it's just someone who's desperate or lashes out, finds himself in that situation. Um, but I don't actually write... I mean, I, I don't want to write about those kind of crimes because I'm much more interested in the kinds of really unusual stories where psychology is involved. Um, I always... Um, when people say, so what kind of crime novels do you write? I always say I write about the kind of crimes that happen once everybody's basic needs have been met. So nobody's desperate for money, nobody needs their fix of heroin. Just because if you need money and heroin, then obviously you're going to commit a crime. That's logical. That's, you know, I would too if I was in that situation. Um, once all your needs have been met and you've got your money and you've got your heroin and you're all fine and affluent and secure, then your mind starts thinking, right, now how can I really make trouble and complication? <laughs> and, um, and so I write about these kinds of crimes that would only ever happen once if they happened at all. So a particular combination of people and something really, really outlandish happens. Um, and obviously I deliberately sort of construct my ideas so that I can write about unusual psychology because I much prefer, as a reader, to read about what I call non-transferable motives. So a crime that has been committed because somebody had this motive that no other person would ever have. I think that's more interesting than he did it for the money or he did it because he was being blackmailed. So um, I'm, I'm at the more outlandish end of the <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> I mean, you were a probation officer for I was, 10 I years. I was a probation officer yeah. and um, so I lost my uh, career through an assault, in fact, at work in the mid-90s, and um, my right wrist was terribly damaged, and I started to type away on a keyboard in order to get my fingers working again, and I never stopped. And that is kind of how I started to write. But my first books um, is uh, The Murder Wall, and the whole idea for The Murder Wall came from, uh, I used to be a Crown Court liaison officer at Newcastle Crown Court, and occasionally, you, you know, I had to go down and see someone who was sentenced to life imprisonment. And believe me, that is bleak. It is, you know, when you are actually faced with somebody who's doing six years, you can say, well, you know, if with good behavior, be out in four or whatever. Um, but when you're facing somebody who's just been sentenced down, sent down for life imprisonment, it is very bleak. And I, and I often, um, I used to think about the fact that the, the family didn't want to go and visit uh, at all. And, and anyone who's read The Murder Wall in this room will understand what I'm talking about. But uh, it was the bleakness of the interview with a, with a lifer that actually spawned the idea for the book, for the first book, The Murder Wall. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know I'm, I'm also interested in the psychology. I mean, I, to be a probation officer, I had to... to uh, to study law and psychology. But, um, you know, as Drida said, often at times, you know, it's, it's your everyday guy who's just totally lost his blob, whether he's been drunk, whether he's, he's you know, he's been drugged or whatever, or she. Um, occasionally it is just a one-off. Yeah, okay. So going back, going back to your books, so, so when you started your East End series, you didn't really realise it was going to be a series? I didn't even realise I was writing crime, <laughs> actually. And I think quite a lot of crime writers 
start out like that. You know, what interested me at the time was I grew up on a housing estate in the East End of London, and what I perceived was happening around me, because I got to go off to university, I still live in the East End of London, I lived on a housing estate until um, 11 years ago, was the women that I grew up with would kind of be successful, even though um, they might have children early. They would always go back into some type of education, some type of training, whereas the guys around me, and one guy who was very close to me, just that just wouldn't happen to them, and they'd end up in prison, drugs. Quite a few people I know ended up as gangsters, quite well-known gangsters, and I just wanted to write a book that was kind of a redemptive piece about a guy who got caught up in the crime world because he had one of those moments when he was a teenager, he had a fabulous talent, somebody was giving him an opportunity, seven days, to get out of London, he was gonna take it, will he or won't he make it? particularly as he makes a false move right at, at the beginning. So I thought I was writing, because, you know, I had an African history degree, I had a master's degree in education. I thought I'm writing a bit of social commentary. And then we did this book, and um, my then publisher gave it to a well-known crime writer. He said, I hope you're putting this in for the Dagger Award, the John Creasy Award, because it's a chase thriller. And I, I'd never thought about it like that. And I remember me and my partner, Tony, because I write with my partner, Tony, I remember we... We went to a party and somebody said, oh, what type of book are you writing? And we said, oh, we're writing a social commentary book, Redemption, blah, blah. We could almost feel people walking away from us. And the next time we went to a party, we said, oh, yeah, it's set in East London. It's a bang, bang book with lots of guns. And people going, when's it coming out? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh. And that's when it kind of dropped for me that some of the issues that I wanted to write about, I felt I could really do it comfortably in, 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 in crime, really. And... You know, the crime world, crime authors are just so giving. It's a great world to be in. And I just wouldn't leave it for, for anything, really. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you were already very successful as a poet when you started writing, your, when you wrote your first psychological thriller. You were conscious that's what you were writing, or were you thinking you were writing something different as well? No, no, I, I've always wanted to write crime fiction, and um, it was really just a coincidence that I was published as a poet first because from a very young age, I've always written rhyming metrical poetry and stories with mysteries in. Um, and I, I became an Agatha Christie fan when I was 12 and read everything Agatha Christie had ever written. Um, and so crime, for me, was the top kind of book, and, and still is, really. I mean, I still, you know, I do sometimes try and read books without mysteries in them, and I kind of think... What, what's my motivation for carrying on? If I'm not waiting to find out something, you know, then I sometimes struggle to, to continue. Uh, and ideally, I like to read books like Agatha Christie, where, you know, you're reading and you think you're just desperate to find out how this thing that seems to be happening can possibly have happened. You know, how can someone have been seen being murdered through the window of a train and then the body's not on the train when the guard stops it, even though the train hasn't stopped in between? And... You know, I got hooked on that kind of desperation to know very early on. Uh, and so I've always wanted to be a crime writer. I've always read mainly crime detective mystery stories. Mm. Uh, and I just happened to be better at writing poetry younger. Because I did write three crime novels between the ages of 16 and 20. And they just weren't very good. Um, and so I sent them off to agents and publishers. Uh, obviously, I didn't realise they weren't very good, uh, but everyone <laughs> quickly told me, and then I did realise. Um, 
And, you know, basically the response was, you're a very good writer, but you're not yet mature enough, obviously, to write a crime novel. Uh, and then I thought, okay, well, I'm, my poetry's getting published, the crime fiction isn't. So clearly, I'm not destined to be a crime writer, and I'll stick to the poetry, that'll be fine. And I did that for about eight years. And then when I had my first baby, um, I had an idea while I was in hospital, because I, I accidentally nearly mixed up my baby with another baby. Um, it wasn't my fault. I'd been in labor for five days. Um, <laughs> and I had an idea for a book, which then became my first published crime novel, Little Face, about a woman who claims her baby's been swapped for another baby. And I thought, this can't be done as a poem. And it's a good idea. I really want to do it. <laughs> and because I'd been in labor for five days, and then, you know, being a mother for two days, which was, you know, fairly traumatic. <laughs> whole person that expects to be looked after forever, you know. I thought, right, now I've really suffered, so I'll be able to write a mature <laughs> crime novel with much suffering in it. Uh, and I did, and that, that became my first published crime novel. <laughs> Thank you for that. Mari, I mean, presumably you, you knew you were going to write a crime novel, but did you know it was going to be a series? I mean, as I say, you've, all, you've already written three. Um, I think I always did know it would be a series. I actually have a confession to make. I am a frustrated person because I wanted to be a police officer, and I, I didn't because my children were young and I couldn't have done the shifts and so on and so forth. I really, really wanted to join the police. Um, but uh, back in the 80s, I decided that uh, if I couldn't join the police, I would join the probation service and, and you know maybe that would that would be fine but I mean I've ended up as a policewoman in my head um I mean I'm I, my partner is actually an ex-murder detective so um between us we have a lots of stories and b lots of authenticity for the world that I'm writing about um and so yeah I mean I've got a box full of ideas at home and you know I my head is full of ideas and I just can't get them out on the paper quick enough so, so, yes, it was always going to be a series, and I'm now writing book five, so... Okay. And, and that, that's the second one. The third this one comes the second out one. next um, April. The third one comes out on the 11th of April, and then I don't know after that. I'm hoping Pam Macmillan are going to slow down. And that, that happened because when I got the book deal, the three-book deal, I'd already written the books. And I thought, that's, that's fine, I'm great now. I'm 2012, 2013, 2014 but they weren't having that. They went, no, no, the books are ready. Let's get them out there. So I've ended up writing a book this year and editing two, uh, which has been quite hard work, but enjoyable. But, you know, I'm not complaining at all. And, it, and it's brilliant. Um, but I think probably we will settle to one a year eventually because I'm. people think I can write quickly and I don't think you can write quickly. I think you've got to take your time. Um, otherwise, it, it just... It, it doesn't come out right. And, and I know people do try to write two books a year, but one is going to be enough for me, I think. Your publishers are in the audience, so that was addressed to you in particular. <laughs> by the way. Uh, I mean, was it the same for you once, once these books took off? You know, Gangster Girls and Girls, were you having to, to produce them quicker than perhaps was comfortable for you? No, not, not than was comfortable. I mean, this book, um, Hit Girls, came out... Um, I'm not even sure if it was last year, the year, year before. It was last year, I think. Was it last year? Thank you. <laughs> because my father passed away last year, and we actually looked after him. My father had lived in England for 40 years, gone back to Grenada, had some great times. He was a fisherman before he came to England. 
We managed to get a boat there, fabulous house near, near, near the beach. And he got sick and he came back. And, you know, I, I always think with my family, they work so hard, so hard for me to get where I am. And this idea that I would keep writing while my father was ill. And I just thought, no, this is real life. And I'm going to stop. And I'm going to spend what quality time I have with my dad. And then he passed away. And there were lots of things to be done. And there was pressure. But you know what? I'd shut the door on the pressure. And I'm really pleased that I did. Because I've just finished um, book six. Me and Tony have just finished book six, which is called Vendetta which isn't set in the East End of London, but it's set in London. And um, I'm really, really pleased because I don't think we would have done that quality of book with that kind of, you know, rhythm behind us, really. And the other thing is, for me, you know, I started out as a teacher and I will forever be an educator. So I'm also a freelance education consultant who works with schools and prisons. And for me, it's always important in relation to being a writer and just in terms of life, that this isn't my only life, that I've got other things going along. I was talking to a young guy the other day and he said, well, that's called portfolio living. And I thought, <laughs> whoa, you know, <laughs> that you've got other things. Because a big thing for me, and I think with, the, what, with what's happened with the recession, that so many of us have just done the one thing in life, like my partner, Tony, got made redundant this year after 30 years of just doing the same job. What I've realised is I've got lots of talents and I want to live all those talents and I'm a very greedy lady. I like to eat a lot. And that's how I feel about life. Life is something to be enjoyed, you know, it's nourishment. So, hey, I didn't do a book last year, but I've just finished one. So oh, that's a really roundabout way of no, answering it's your a question. Answer, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just think of this is part of my life, but it's not all of my life. Sophie, I know you've got a family, so obviously they're a big part of your life, but is writing the kind of main part of your life? Or um, yeah, I would say it is. Um, I've, writing has just always been something I've done. So, you know, for as long as I have known how to write, writing, making things up, whether it's stories or poems, has been really, really important to me. Um, and I just can't imagine not doing it. So um, I also find, actually, that although... You know, my crime novels are obviously fiction, but they are somehow, and I can't really explain why, so don't ask me to, they are somehow a more genuine expression of who I am than my actual life is. Because in actual life, you have to make so many compromises. And you often find yourself thinking, why am I in this situation? Did I ever choose any of these things? What's going on? Um, whereas in, in my writing, anyway, I, you know, I choose what to put in, and I edit it, and I work on it. So, yeah, writing is probably, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's more important to me than my family, but it's, it's up there. Um, <laughs> and in terms of the, the book a year thing, I mean, yes, if you write commercial crime fiction, you are, you know, publishers like it if you produce a book a year. But having said that, no one ever forces you. And I know plenty of crime writers who, who say, sorry, I can't do a book a year. I mean, one of the best-selling and best crime novels published this year, a book called Before I Go to Sleep by S.J. Watson, he said uh, straight away, you know, when, when the book was being touted around and auctioned, he let it be known that he had no intention of writing a book a year and that he thought it was an absurd thing to aim for and he'll write another book when he's ready. And everyone said, huh, oh, fine, never mind. Uh, so, you know, I don't think publishers can really force you to. I think what the problem is, 
when authors know that publishers want a book a year and so just start writing kind of any book rather than a book that really needs to be written. Uh, and that, that can happen. Uh, so I think, you know, the, really the onus is on the author and the publisher, the editor, to know if that's happening and not publish that book. And that doesn't always happen. Yeah. You know, because if there is a book there, the temptation is, of course, oh, well, we'll publish it. No one will notice, but readers do notice. <laughs> I mean, I've given up on some writers who, you know, I regularly used to read their book a year, and at a certain point I started thinking, hang on a minute, this isn't the real stuff, to sound like a, a drug user again. This isn't, they've cut it with something less pure. <laughs> Could that be the need to hand in by the 30th of April? Um, so that, I think, is, is well worth avoiding. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got loads more questions, but I think it's only fair to get some questions from the audience, so thank you for your patience with me. If you've got a question, stick your hand in there, just wait for the microphone. The doors are locked, there's nowhere for you to go, so you may as well. Uh, there's somebody right at the back there. Just wait for the microphone if you would. Thank you very much for um, uh, the very interesting words we've had this afternoon. Now, I'm not going to ask you, Sophie, to name the particular writers you were just referring to. But, <laughs> Good. <laughs> but can I ask a very simple question in relation to um, all the range of commercial fiction genres? Can you justify exactly why crime fiction should be considered important? Should be considered, should be considered Im important. Important. Can you yeah. justify why crime fiction should be considered important? Marie didn't have an opportunity no. to answer that. No, do you want to? I write, I read crime all the time. I have to say that I was brought up on crime, and not, not just in a job, but I, I, mean, I absolutely am a crime, crime reader before I was a crime writer. Um, and, and that was from sort of way back in the early 80s. But um, Justify, I think that a, whatever you write, as long as you're entertaining um, and as long as you take it um, really seriously because, um, you know, people, you know, they, they come to events like this, they, they put their hand in their pocket, they buy books, and actually you as a writer have got a responsibility to make that as interesting as possible. I personally couldn't read horror, for example, but um, I don't know whether I've answered that question no, or not. But no, I mean, I, I, mean I, I think you know, it's what it's part of life, and we're we're really writing about part of life. Mm. What about that important bit, Sophie? Do you think crime fiction is important or needs to justify itself as important? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's two ways of looking at it. I mean, in one way, I don't think. I don't think you can really justify the importance of any genre to somebody who doesn't love that genre. So I wouldn't want to sort of say crime is important to somebody who hates reading crime fiction because obviously they shouldn't read it. Uh, and the same with poetry and the same with romance or whatever. I think it's really important that people should read what they love. And as long as people are reading what they love, then, then everything's pretty much fine. Having said that, since crime is my favourite genre, it's obviously important to me, and I, I can justify that very easily. Um, 
for me, it's the, the puzzle aspect of crime fiction, which is generally regarded as quite lowbrow. If you ask contemporary crime writers, especially ones that want to be highbrow, they'll say, oh no, puzzle? <laughs> What's the puzzle? It's all, it's all about character. <laughs> character means drinking wine and playing CDs, um, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but I think the puzzle aspect of crime fiction is crucially important because it's the puzzle aspect of life and of other people that keeps us interested in getting up in the morning. You know, we never know what's going to happen next. We never know whether the people close to us are who they appear to be. Some of them we might think they probably are, but we never really know. Anything could be going on in people's heads. Um, and so, you know, life is basically people who are all puzzles to themselves as well, trying to solve other puzzles in the form of other people and work out what the hell's gone on in the past and what might happen in the future. And crime fiction mirrors that life experience much more accurately than any other genre, I think. Do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree, really. But for me as well, it is about um, character, because I think sometimes people do come back, if you write a series, they do come back to find out about the puzzle, but they also come back to find out about the character, what's kind of gone on in their life. And I think with me, with crime fiction, I've read, obviously, I've read quite a lot of crime fiction, but I think the love for me for crime comes from the television. I never forget when I was little, my mum had a thing about Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwyck. And I never forget sitting there and watching, I don't know if everyone knows the film Double Indemnity mm. with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. And my mum's watching it and it's in black and white and I'm sitting there thinking, but she's married to that man, how can she be? You know, and I'm really young and I'm thinking, oh, people as characters do quite naughty things and then there's the insurance money. And then years later, I find out the screenplay was written by Raymond Chandler. And then I moved on to Hill Street Blues and I just, I just watched so much crime. I watched um, Sophie's fabulous case sensitive. I don't know if other people watch it, you know. And I think people love something that's entertaining. There's a mystery, but we're also really nosy. We want to know about those people as well and what drives those people, but not always in relation to the crime, but just in relation to being a human being. And I don't think any genre, I'm with Sophie on this, should really have to justify itself. The justification is, if people want to go out there and buy it, that's justification enough. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for the question. Another question? Also on the back row, just there. Thank you. I've been really enjoying your talk, so thanks very much. I've got two questions, but I'll limit myself to one. You were talking earlier on, um, Sophie, you mentioned this thing about um, people producing a book per year and the kind of pressure and tension of that. Do you think that there's an element of pressure and tension in terms of maintaining a character as well? So, um, you know how we all know the story about Conan Doyle desperately wanting to get rid of Sherlock Holmes as a character. Um, there are one or two writers, Patricia Cornwell, I think, being one of them, who I wonder how much she's being driven by having to produce a book a year and whether that character's had its day, really, and yet... Are there, is there a huge pressure from your readership to continue those characters possibly past where you might want to take them? Dreda, have your characters had their day? Is that why you... Yeah, that? and people have really... When I was doing book signings for this, people go, what, schoolboy's not coming back? They're not coming back. And I was going, no, 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 no. Go, are you sure? And I said, yeah, they're not coming back. And it's really hard. So what I've said actually on my website is I've just put them to the side for now 
just in case, because you don't know with life. They, you, you may very well kind of want to do that. But it's interesting when you talk about a main character. I've recently changed my agent, and I'm with... My last agent was fab, and I'm with an agent now. I'm working with a younger agent who is just so energetic. And what he said to me and Tony to think about in terms of a long-term series was to have three characters, and each character kind of appears in a book. So one character's at the forefront, and the others are in the background, and then another one takes centre stage. And I quite liked that, and hadn't really thought about it like that. And I think that's really good because I think it makes me as a writer more energised. Rather than keep coming back to the same person, you're coming back to a group of people and kind of putting the spotlight on them in kind of different ways. I think it's a great thing. And as I was saying before, people enjoy finding out about people. So why not write a series of books about a group of people? Hmm. Either, either of you. Either. I was just going to say, I think sometimes it's led by the readers. Because, to be honest, I mean, I've just bought The Bone Bed, Patricia Cornwell, and there were, there were a few books, I think, along the way that I, that I didn't think were quite as good as the initial ones, and then she kind of went off the boil, and then, but apparently she's come back. But I always buy her books. I think people would... There would be an uproar if she didn't write a book. Um, look at uh, Ian Rankin. I mean, he, didn't, he was stopping writing Rebus, and people have gone, bring him back. We want him more, more, more. So I think that sometimes the series is driven by the readers, the readership, because, you know, we, we, we love these characters. We get to know these characters, and we're waiting for the next book, aren't we? Aren't but, we? But, do you, mm? but can you imagine getting sick of your main protagonist um, in due course? I'm, I often get sick with Kate, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no. Um, somebody asked me this. It was, it was strange the other day. Somebody said, would you consider killing her off well I wouldn't be able to tell them the answer to that because at the end of the day um, you know I've, I, Kate's got a, a long way to go yet mm. I mean I'm, I'm just getting used to her and I'm getting to know her and the more I write about her the more I like writing about her so at the moment the answer would be no um, mm. Sophie? Um, I think there's, there's certainly a perception among publishers that if, you, if they get a submission of a, a first crime novel and there's any character in it that can be made into a series character, <laughs> the publisher will generally, if not always, say, oh, I hope this is going to be a series and try and persuade the author to, to do a series because I think publishers perceive that that will sell better. It isn't always the case. And what starts to happen is, after a, f a few books down the line, series crime writers whose books aren't selling at all, of which there are plenty, their publishers start to say, why don't you do a standalone? And then that <laughs> becomes the great hope. Series hasn't worked, standalone will work. And then people who have done standalones and they haven't worked, the publisher will say, oh, maybe it's time to do a series. So I think it's basically, you know, everyone wants to try whatever might work if what you're doing already isn't. Um, but I think it's a shame if writers write about a series character or keep a series character alive just because they think it will sell. I mean, I don't know why Ian Rankin has resurrected Rebus, uh, but I assumed, with Ian Rankin being so successful, that he would only have done that because he personally wanted to. If he's done it because his post-Rebus books haven't sold as well, then he's not going to enjoy... You know, I mean, nobody wants to be over a barrel. So writers should, you know, have to really write about the characters they 
want to write about. And I think, you know, you just know, I know. So, for example, my book, which I've just handed in, which is book number eight, that has my detectives in it, Simon and Charlie and all their colleagues. Now, I don't actually write a straightforward series because my books feel more like standalones, actually. Um, I've kind of tried to have the best of both worlds. But certainly my police characters, I'm just nowhere near bored of them. You know, they feel like interesting characters who are still very much there, which isn't to say I wouldn't write standalones in between because I, I will at some point do that. But if I stop writing about them, I would feel that was definitely the wrong decision and I don't want to stop writing about them. So, I, you know, I think the right, you just have to be guided by what you feel compelled to write. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've no time for any more questions, I'm afraid. We're out of time. Uh, our authors will be signing copies of the books in the bookshop around the corner. And can I ask you before, I ask you to give your thanks to let us get out of here, to get the Elvises out of the building before you stand so that they can be waiting for you when you do come and buy their books. Thank you all for coming and being such an attentive and responsive audience. But please thank our guests. <laughs>